you would turn to Titus chapter 2, look at 2, and we have been, we've been in this, this series now since November. Titus is again a young man, not an, a young, young man, but a, a young man in relation to Paul who has been tasked to work on the island of Crete where the gospel had spread and where Paul had had an impact upon those people's lives. And many churches were, um, were begun on that, on that island. And sadly, um, some folks had, some false teachers had begun to teach things that were undermining the faith of these dear individuals that Paul cared about. And so he sends Titus to help these churches and to set things in order, as he says in chapter one. And Paul is going through in the beginning in chapter one, he goes through all of the issues going on in Crete, the the individuals and what kind of people they are. And then he gets into Titus two, chapter two. And in chapter two, we begin to see we, move, we shift from who these people are, who they have, they have undermined the gospel to those who have come to faith in Christ and now are to live the gospel. And, and Paul, Paul in his typical way is, is very clear about what is our responsibility, the imperatives. And, and in this passage, and, and actually in chapter 2, it's, it's a bit unusual. Paul normally talks about our theological grounding, the, what are called indicatives, what Christ has done for us before he ever gets to the imperatives, the commands that we are to follow. But here in Titus, he flips it. He talks about all the things that we are to do, all the commands we are to follow, and then and then he brings in this profound passage that we will be studying this morning. It is, it is, if there was only one passage that you could have, you were somewhere where you only had one portion of the Bible, these th- four verses, 11 through 14, would be all you need to know about the Savior and to know what he has done. So let me read chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. 
Let no one disregard you. Father, this passage tells us all we need to know about you. Thank you for showing us love and redemption in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for these words that you are speaking this morning and help each one of us to be attentive to your voice, to be clear in what you are saying, to receive what you are saying, that we might be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. You sent your son. We thank you that in your sovereign love and care and wisdom and grace, you saved us. Lord, may your name be glorified this morning as we look at this glorious gospel once again. In Christ's name, amen. Well, prior to becoming a Christian, in high school, I had many doubts. A number of my friends in high school who had professed faith in Christ invited me to do a Bible study one night. That night they passed around this picture that everyone was looking at to see the hidden picture within the picture. And so I looked at it. I looked at it as long and as hard as I possibly could. I squinted. You know how you squint? I put it in in every different position possible. But regardless of how I looked at that picture, I could not see the face of Christ in the ink blob that was on the paper. Have any of you ever seen one of those? That was real popular in the 70s. And, and I'm, all the folks that are my age are shaking their head. Oh, yeah, I remember that ink blot. Yeah, yeah, I, I still have not seen the face of Christ in that ink blot. And all I saw was this, this blob of ink. And, in, and sadly, in looking at that, I thought, well, there's no way I could ever become a Christian. <laughs> Can't see Jesus. It ain't going to happen. Well, in this amazing and profound passage that we just read, Paul is making sure that these Cretan believers see with perfect clarity what many unbelievers on Crete do not see, Jesus Christ. To see Christ clearly, to see the person and work of Christ. They don't need to see in Paul's past. They don't need to squint to see the face of Christ because as Paul makes it very clear, crystal clear in this passage, they see all they need to see in the gospel. And in that gospel, Paul is making clear he has appeared in saving grace. Christ has appeared in saving grace and Christ will appear again in triumphant glory. And in these previous verses, he's, he's listed in verses of chapter 2, 2 through 10, he's listed the ethical implications of what it means for us to live for Christ. He lays down all these commands, these imperatives, and now in these following verses, he ensures that their obedience to these commands, their obedience to these imperatives, he he wants to make sure that their their obedience doesn't lead to a a self-confidence, a self-effort, 
um, a, a self-justification. He wants to make sure that they are grounded in gospel truth. They are grounded in grace. That what has happened to them has not been a work of their own effort. It has been a work of the supernatural God. It has been a work that has transformed their lives and, and that they can live these commands because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to them. Yes, he is making sure life in Christ, it must be different. It must look different than, than the world around us, but not through human achievement and self-effort. Paul, Paul wants to anchor their godly behavior. He wants to anchor our godly behavior this morning. Not, not in the sinner, but in the Savior. He, wa- he wants to make sure as he transitions into verse 11 that all of these wonderful commands that, that do, do display the glory and grace of Christ as we live them out, that they are rooted, they are grounded, they are anchored, not in, not in what we can do, but what Christ has done. It's not, but it's not a passivity. It's not a, okay, we just let go and let God but it is that God has done a work in us first. And in verse 11, he makes that clear. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That word appeared is where we get the word epiphany. It is, it is a, a, a happening, a, a moment. God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. What, what a glorious recounting of history that saving grace has come. Christ, Christ has made his way from heaven to humanity to be the sacrificial lamb, to be the ransom for the debt of our sin, to be the wrath bearer of God's judgment so that we would be reconciled to God and to be the firstborn from the dead through resurrection that he would conquer the power of sin in death in saving men and women. Paul Paul roots them in the gospel. Now, this, this passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14 in particular, literally is, it is, it is the pinnacle of this book. It is the Mount Everest of this book. You get no higher than this passage right here in recounting both the grace and the glory of God as he instructs believers to look to the past, to look at the present, and to look to the future. Look back at the saving work and look ahead to the glorious return of Christ who will appear once again so that it informs and powerfully influences how you live in the present. Paul is just, open your eyes. See again and again the marvelous and miraculous display of God's love in Jesus Christ. Paul is making sure we don't have to squint to see Jesus Christ. He's made it clear for the grace of God has appeared. 
Now, it's clear that when Paul talks about two appearances here, it's about the importance of what has, what has happened, what is going to happen, and then this, this in-between where we live. We live in the in-between. We live in the present age. And it is, it is incumbent upon us to look and see, okay, what does that mean for us? Christ has appeared, bringing salvation to all. And he will appear again in glory. The very end of all things. But what happens in between? Because that, that is where we are right now. That is where, that is where we are living. We are to look back and we are to look ahead to make sure we know where we are standing. John Stott says this in his commentary. He said, this deliberate orientation of ourselves, this looking back and looking forward, this determination to live in the light of Christ's two comings, to live today in the light of yesterday and tomorrow, this should be an essential part of our daily discipline. Here's my main idea this morning. For us to stay on the path of godliness, we must never lose sight of his saving grace and triumphal return in glory. For us to stay on the path of godliness, we must never lose sight of his saving grace and triumphal return in glory. Three points this morning to help us just get our arms around this verse. Because it is these two events, the, the grace of God appearing and the glory of God appearing, is those two events that literally open and close the gospel. There, there is. There's a beginning to the gospel and, in a sense, an end to the close of the gospel when Christ's return in glory. It's these Two events that display the gospel by showing us in three points that, number one, grace is our Savior. Secondly, grace is our teacher. And thirdly, glory is our blessed hope. So first point, grace is our Savior, 2.11. I, lo- I love these words, the, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. An epiphany. An epiphany has occurred at this moment in time, the most extraordinary and remarkable event in human history happened. God entered our broken and tragically dark world in Christ. Jesus came bringing light, the light of life, the light of salvation to save 
us from our sin. The grace of God has appeared. Those those are profound words. As I prepared this week, as I studied, I thought we could spend between a month and two months in these four verses. We could spend two, three, four, five weeks in just for the grace of God has appeared. Those, those are stunning words. When you think about who we are, who we were, and who God is, a holy God who does not righteously tolerate sin in his presence, who is pure and good and majestic, and who left heaven and entered humanity in a sin-scarred world, for the grace of God has appeared. It should change your life. Many, many years ago, my oldest, my son David, decided that he was going to surprise his younger sister, Jenny, and so he hid behind her door of her room. And Jenny unknowingly just walked into this dark room, and suddenly David jumps out and appears. Jenny has not been the same since. (laughs) That night, she moved her bed against the wall and slept as close to the wall as possible for protection. She has not been the same since. And it wasn't grace that appeared at that moment. Grace has appeared and changed our lives. The glory of God will appear. But right now, we're living with the grace. And this opening statement unfolds the meaning of what we read in verse 10 of chapter 2, where Paul writes, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then he goes on to explain who God our Savior is. The grace of God has appeared. And the grace of God did not suddenly come into existence when Jesus came. It has always existed. God has always been gracious. He has always been the God of all grace. His saving grace existed before time began. His saving grace, not just grace, but his saving grace existed before time began. Remember these profound words in Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before this world was ever created. Before you were ever born. You were chosen in Christ. The grace of God appeared even then. But here, in the grace of God appearing, it has uniquely and visibly been revealed in the appearing of Jesus Christ. The grace, and the grace of God it's more, brothers and sisters, it's more than a divine 
attribute. It's a divine person. Jesus was grace incarnate who came to deliver us from condemnation and from death. This grace was displayed at the very beginning in in Christ's lowly birth and his gracious words and compassionate deeds. And above all, it was displayed in his atoning death. He was full of grace. His gracious offer of salvation is desperately needed by a world entrapped in the throes of judgment and death. And it is in that world that grace appeared. What an offer. Grace, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This offer of salvation. What an offer and what a gift that Christ has brought. What kindness and love on display from who? The creator of the universe. The Holy One. The one who who dwells in unapproachable light. The one who is pure and majestic. The one who does not tolerate sin and does punish sin. That God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. All who would put their trust and faith in Christ. These these are profound words. Words. This, this is a marvelous display of God's grace. And it's only possible, it was only possible because Jesus put aside his divine glory. Glory that will, as we read later, will one day reappear. But he put aside his divine glory. He, he covered himself in our frail and sinful flesh yet without sin. He entered our world. He experienced our anguish. He faced our temptations. Brothers and sisters, he suffered because of our sin. He went to a cross and he experienced the wrath of his own father being poured out upon him, separating him from his father, being forsaken by his father, so that grace saves. So if we're not aware of how sinful we are, we'll never appreciate how amazing grace is. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. We must not ever lose sight of why grace had to appear. Because of how sinful we are. And yeah, We all come from different places and we all have different stories about the kind of lives we lived prior to coming to faith in Christ. But to a person, every one of us was under the judgment and wrath of God. 
deservedly so. And in the sovereign mystery of God, he made us objects of mercy rather than objects of wrath. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. William Mounts, in his commentary, said this. He said, grace is a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ given freely to sinners who believe. Grace is a one-word summary of all that God has done. We must never stop looking back at his appearing. Remembering his appearing It should never become like an old photograph that fades over time. You guys, you younger generation, you have digital photographs. Come to my house and I'll show you photo albums. You might even be able to figure out who's in the picture. But they've faded over time. As Marilyn and I celebrate our 39th wedding anniversary in a few weeks... We look at the photographs of our wedding day. We're not as clear. And I'm, I've aged a little bit. But we're, we're, not, as, we're not as clear. And, and, and the gospel can, can fade like a photograph. We get caught up in all of what goes on in life in this present age and the, the temptations we face. We can, we can see it fade. And it must not. It must not. We don't have to squint to see the gospel. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, look, grace has not only appeared for salvation. Grace does something else. Grace is our teacher. Verse 12, he goes on training us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. At first, it it approaches a negative. It says, listen, here's what grace does. It tells you to say no to these things. No to ungodliness and no to worldly passions. The, The gospel offers not merely an escape from the punishment of sin, but it also aims to affect a transformation in our character. To affect a transformation in the conduct of those who have been born again. Jesus does not save people in their sin. He saves people from their sin. That's what has appeared. Grace in the person and in the work of the Holy Spirit is what we're looking at here. Now listen, there is this wonderful in the background, Trinitarian teaching, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just in these verses, God the Savior, God our Savior, talking about God the Father, and now we talk about the, the Holy Spirit who is training us to renounce ungodliness. This, he is our teacher. He's our instructor for everyday living as believers. God, God administers grace to us. He empowers us so that we can live distinctly gospel generated lives. That's what he's after. Christ-like character. But standing in the way of that is ungodliness. Standing in the way of that are worldly passions. And the church needs to be warned about those dangers, as Paul does for these Cretans here on Crete. All of us need divine grace to defeat 
the temptations that seek to draw our hearts away from the Lord, from loving God, that that seek to draw our hearts to loving the world and the things of the world. So, So grace first trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. That word renounce is strong. It's not just a, oh, no, I don't think I'll do it. It is is a no, a no to ungodliness. Grace is to be our constant companion, our empowering by the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. Salvation has ethical demands. Salvation makes claims upon our lives to live a certain way. Living godly lives, that's Paul's primary point in this passage. Because of the gospel, you can live like this, which we just read about in verse 10, will adorn the gospel, will make the gospel shine and put it on display. Grace is our teacher and we are its students. And it, ta- it trains us to take an aggressive approach to, to ren- sin by renouncing ungodliness. Now, m- uh, most of us are pretty clear on ungodliness. I mean, it's just simply sinful behavior that we are not to practice, as John says in his letters, sinful behavior that we are to say no to, sinful behavior that we are to stop. It's, a, it's pretty black and white. Now, worldly passions gets a little bit more tricky. That can be a sticky area, if not for some, for many. When, when talking about worldly passions and worldliness, it can bring out very strong feelings that can very quickly provoke lie, uh, cries of legalism. Oh, you're being legalistic. Who are you to tell me what is worldly? Who are you to tell me how I am to live? Who are you to tell me what to wear? Who are you to tell me what to watch? Who are you to tell me what to listen to? Who are you? Who are you to tell me what worldliness is? What social media I can use? Who are you? But that is a total misunderstanding of legalism. Paul talks about worldly passions. He has a very clear understanding in his mind. And and we can too if we go to 1 John. Because in 1 John, John makes it very clear in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and now he describes what worldliness is, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen, if you have to, if you have to fight to convince others what 
you're doing is not worldly. I think you're already there. And Paul is saying, grace that has appeared is training us to learn what worldliness is. It's training us to say no to that worldliness. Because we live in a world that gives hearty approval to worldliness. If you read Romans 1, that was one of the issues in Romans 1. All who were rejecting God and worshiping the creature rather than the creator were giving hearty approval to those who do the same. Paul is saying here, no, no, no. Grace has appeared and it is training us to see clearly what is worldly, to understand what is ungodly, and to renounce them, to say no to them that we might adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, imagine, imagine the shock on Crete when these suddenly redeemed men and women who are part of this new thing called Christianity begin saying no to the lifestyle they all once so eagerly engaged in. They, 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 they are being sanctified by God's saving grace. And now they're saying no to ungodliness and worldliness. And they're able to do it because as Romans 6.14 tells us, sin no longer has power over you. It's been broken. So what Paul is after is living in such a manner that reflects the transforming grace leading to godly passions. And so then he moves on to say, okay, so what does it look like to renounce these things and to live for Christ? And he says to live, and here's that, again, self-control. That's the fifth time self-control is mentioned by Paul in Titus. Self-control to older men, self-control to older women, self-control to younger women, self-control to younger men, self-control to elders, and now self-control to all who have been saved by grace. Paul says, let us live self-control. That is, that would be inward. And then he goes on, but to live upright. Upright, which is... which is. But the Greek behind that is to is is actually horizontal relationships. In other words, upright, righteously among us. So outward, and then godly lives, upward, inward, outward, and upward. Paul is saying here, live this way, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And he says it in this way: live this this way in this present age. In other words, right now, where you're situated in Crete. In a culture that is committed to making you live another way. Live this way that you might adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace has appeared and it has saved us and it trains us. And now, and the gospel has one final goal. Not just saving us, not just training us, but Christ returning in glory and being our blessed hope. Look at verse 13. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting for our blessed hope. Living in this present age reminds us, it tells us, wait a minute, there's an age to come. There's an age to come. And we are waiting an eternal age where all who have believed and trusted in Christ for their salvation will dwell with God. Will dwell with God. In 2.13, Paul describes Jesus' return as our blessed hope. Paul is thinking of, of Christ's return in his glory. Christ's return in his glory. For the believer, the blessed hope is, is not some subjective wish it's an objective reality that is assured that is assured by truth that Christ will return again what we are waiting for what we are are longing for will come to pass our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will come again he will come again in glory and when he comes again in glory the end of the age has come. Everything is consummated. The gospel is done. Faith is not needed anymore because we will see Christ face to face. And we wait. We wait longing for that appearing, the glory of our great God. I mean, you think you might have been surprised at grace appearing and saving you. Oh, wait till Christ appears in glory to return for you. That is a day that cannot even be adequately described. What we know is that the great God is coming. Two fourteen, Paul closes this exquisite, I call it a gospel doxology. It is literally almost a hymn here of who God is and all he has done. And he closes it with these words. He says, listen, this is what we're waiting for, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then he describes what he's done. Again, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He is purifying a people for his own possession. He has given himself. He gave himself on that cross that he might pay the debt of our sin, that he might bear our judgment and wrath so that we would be redeemed from lawlessness and we could be purified by the sanctifying work, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But not just to that end, to the end where he says, we are his treasured possession who will be, who should be zealous for good works. Now look, and remember in, in chapter 1, Paul made it very clear of those who, in verse 16, 
those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. It's one thing to profess God. It's another thing to live for God. To profess God, but deny him by unlawful, sinful work. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Listen, he gave himself to redeem you. He gave himself to free you from lawlessness and to purify you so that you would be zealous for good works. And just, this was a letter that was read most likely by Titus in the local churches. So you're, you're sitting there, Titus is reading this, and then Titus gets to verse 15, and there were no verse numbers in this. This was a letter. So it, it wasn't like Titus is going, and Paul says verse 15. No, no, it's just a letter. But then he gets to this part of the letter. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, Titus, preach it, brother. Preach it. And that is what the Lord is saying this morning. These things have been declared to you. Now, you might need to be exhorted, or maybe you need to be rebuked, but do not disregard what the Lord is saying. Do not disregard. Just to close, this is what he's done. In verse, verses 11 and 14, the past, he's delivered us from sin's penalty. In verses 12 and 14, the present, he's delivered us from sin's power. And 2.13, the future, he'll deliver us from sin's presence on that final day. John MacArthur says this. He says, the very point of the redemptive grace of God through Jesus Christ is to save us from the corruption and damnation of sin, sin that debilitates and crushes human life, that separates sinners from a holy God, and that persists in unredeemed mankind like an incurable and fatal disease. Listen, this morning, if you are not a Christian, that's that's where you are. You, you are separated as a sinner from a holy God. You, you are persisting. You are persisting, persisting in a lifestyle that is corrupt and brings damnation. It is an incurable and it is a fatal disease. And only one, and only one can heal. And that is the one for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Now, for those of you who are Christians, what are you passionate about? Because the trouble here is, Paul's after worldly passions. Are, are, are you passionate about intimacy with God? Are you passionate about a deeper knowledge of his word? Are you passionate about a deeper love for his church? Are you passionate with an eagerness awaiting his return in glory? And if you are not passionate about those things, then you are passionate about something else. And that is a problem. So what Paul wants us to do this morning is to consider all that God has done for us in Christ because the grace of God has appeared. 
and the glory of God will one day appear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for giving us life in Christ. And now this morning we pray and ask, Lord, where there is any ungodliness in our lives, would you please put a spotlight on it that we might repent and turn away and and live godly lives. And where there are worldly passions, Lord, may you put a spotlight on those that we might say no to them, renounce them, and begin to live upright, godly, self-controlled lives where our passion is about you and your church. Lord, may you do these things by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, We pray. Amen.